I want to pray as we open the word this morning. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you will continue to do your work here this morning. I know you are active and, and you so desire that each one of us in this room uh, sees Jesus magnified in our own hearts, sees Jesus magnified in our community here at this church, this location, that, that we see Jesus magnified in our city and in our world. Uh, Jesus is huge, but sometimes we see him as so little and maybe having such a small place in our lives. And Holy Spirit, it's your job to, to, to come in and to make him look to us as big as he truly is. That's what a magnifier does. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will magnify the Son in our presence um, as, we, as we consider his work, as we read his word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's been a while since we have spent some time in our study of the book of Acts. We're returning there today. We'll be there at least for the next couple weeks. I can't promise you anything after that. Uh, but we're going to be back in Acts chapter 9. So you've got to kind of dust off the shelves and remind yourself where we were. We're kind of picking up in the middle of the chapter today. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along in Acts 9. Uh, but before I read the text for you, I just want to kind of bring us into some context that will hopefully lead us into this text this morning. And uh, I want to, as I was preparing for this message, and it's all about fear, how we not, this text isn't only about fear, but that's the, uh, the message that the Lord laid on my heart out of this story this week. And you know, our society is obsessed, on the one hand, obsessed with safety, um, but but on the other hand, also just really enjoys fear. You know, you you see it on the news programs. If if there's going to be, you know, if it's the beginning of December and there's going to be a two inch snowfall, they're going to you, you hear about snow snow apocalypse 2015, or you know, it's going to be the worst storm in the world. If the next hurricane that comes is going to be the worst hurricane ever. Um, if there's not a juicy murder to report here in Lincoln, and then they're going to tell us about something that happened in Omaha. We're obsessed with safety, but we also love to feed on fear. Just last week, or earlier this week, my youngest son, Jace, came to me and he asked, are monsters real? It's a question he asks every once in a while. We love to be afraid of things, and we fear a lot of things that will never hurt us. It's coming up to Halloween time, and the kids are going to be out trick-or-treating, and, and you have that, that every year you have this scare about poisoned Halloween candy. You know, kids, we send them out to strangers to collect candy, then we bring them home, bring them into our homes, and we go through all their candy because we're afraid of what some stranger might have put in there basket despite the fact that that poison candy has never in the history happened from the hands of a stranger there have been a couple of incidents where a family member tried to poison his own children we fear a lot of things that will never hurt us some fears on the other hand are well founded i looked up this week a list of the current top fears for us as americans and wouldn't it surprise you that number one on the list for 2015, currently the Americans' number one fear, is the fear of the corruption of government officials. Some fears are more well-founded than others. So this thing of fear, out of fear, 
we, our response is we try to make ourselves more safe and more secure. So we wear helmets, we wear padding when we're playing sports, we continually try to improve our equipment, equipment. Um, we make rules like they do at the, the school my children go to where in a, if it's in winter time and they go out for recess and there's snow on the ground, the rule is you cannot pick up the snow. I know you're a child. I know you love snowball fights and I, you love to play in the snow, but someone might get hurt. So blanket rule, no picking up snow at recess. We do silly things like that, but it doesn't work. In fact, research indicates that the more safety equipment we use and include in our activities, the more danger we actually face. There's a whole field of study called risk compensation theory, and, and, and there's a, an effect called the, the Peltzman effect. It's this guy who studied safety, and especially as regards to, in regards to automobiles. And, and uh, the Peltzman fa- effect is this, that that when you involve the more safety equipment or safety rules you involve in a behavior, uh, the more danger you actually face. Because what happens is people begin to feel safer, and so then they begin to do things that are more risky. So if you have a seat belt, if you have airbags in your car, you're going to start driving faster. That's what the study has found. If you're a football player and you have better padding and a stronger helmet, you're going to hit harder. You're going to take more risks as you play the game. So fear is kind of this cyclical thing. We, we fear, so we create safety devices. Then we feel safer, so as a result, we start to behave more recklessly, and injuries still happen. And then as bad things start to happen to us, the more they happen, we become even more fearful and try to create more safety, and that crazy cycle never ends. And it's all kind of funny when you think about it that way. But this cultural obsession with fear and with safety is... If, if that comes in and informs how I follow Jesus in my discipleship walk with him, then it's a different story. When God asks me to step up in obedience to him, there can be a tremendous amount of fear. And so then what I do is I respond by doing the safe thing or finding a safe place. And I miss these incredible things that Jesus wants to call me into. The experience of this fear cycle is, is, on one hand, if you think of it in terms of our society, it's crippling enough. But when that kind of fear cycle informs my relationship with God, it can have devastating conflict or consequences. Fear settles into my heart when, when, when God asks me to maybe step out and speak about my faith to someone else who is struggling with their faith or is maybe exploring what they believe. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I somehow mess it up? What if I offend them? Fear settles in for for the student whose friends are are doing things that are considered stupid and and, and, uh, they just go along with it because they fear losing their friendships, maybe being made fun of, somehow becoming an outsider. Fear settles in for... Those of us who want to stay away from dangerous places, and yet somehow in the middle of that, we sense God leading us directly into those very places and situations, and that fear cripples us. Fear can be dangerous. Fear can derail the the Youngs and the Petersons from stepping out and taking a risk and following God to a place like the Philippines or 
to Guinea and joining what Jesus is doing there. Fear can, can, can keep us as a church, can hold us back from embracing our own call to send those two families out into the mission into which God is calling them. Fear can keep you, it can keep me from taking whatever next risky steps that God is calling us to or calling us as a church to do. So this morning, like I said, we're looking at Acts 9. And right in the middle of this story of the conversion of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, if you'll remember back, I think Doug last spoke about from those first nine verses of Acts chapter 9, and we we heard the story of Paul's conversion. Right in the middle of that story of Saul's conversion is is a man, kind of an unknown man, who really stepped up. Despite all of the fears that he had, and he had plenty of reason to fear, he stepped up and he obeyed God in in the middle of a situation that was just encircled with fear for him and for his family and for his community. All kinds of perceived dangers. And this passage, this story this morning is not... A judgment to you and to me when we experience fear. Really what it is, it's an invitation to honestly, to openly express those fears to God and to meet him in the middle of those fears. And then to answer his call despite all of the things that make us afraid. So let's look at the text. Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 10. Again, background We've just had this amazing conversion experience of Saul. The character we meet today knows nothing of that. He doesn't know what we know from this story. And it just picks up in verse 10. It says, now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has been, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So fear. Our guy Ananias certainly, rightfully has a lot to fear. We don't know a lot about Ananias, but we know he was a Christian living in the city of Damascus. He was not one of those from Jerusalem who was scattered and went into all these cities as refugees because of the persecution in Jerusalem. It says that he was a resident of Damascus. But he knows what's going on. 
And so he has a lot to fear when God comes to him with this word without a whole lot of explanation in the beginning. I'm sending you to this man named Saul, as if you didn't know who he was. Saul, this infamous man you've been hearing about who's terrorizing the church. What does he have to fear? Obviously, very simply, he has to, if he's going to obey God in this situation, the call is to go and approach this man, Saul. Saul, who has been terrorizing the followers of Jesus. Go way back to chapter 7 in Acts. You remember the story starts. We first meet Paul as he is holding the cloaks, the coats and robes of those who are stoning Stephen. Paul stands by nodding his approval. And then in chapter 8, Saul begins to get a more prominent position. Chapter 8, verse 3, it says this. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. So apparently this man Saul, kind of a bystander at the stoning of Stephen, when the temple guard said, is there someone out here who can take care of these crazy Christians, followers of the way out there? Paul was the first to raise his hand, zealous for God, said, I will step in. And he began a campaign of terror against the church on the full of, with the full authority of the temple behind him. Then we come to the first part of chapter 9, and we see him still doing this, but he's beginning to spread out. says Saul, in chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now he has this stamp of approval. He has this letter authorizing him to go and arrest the Christians in the hometown of Ananias. Paul himself describes this time period in his life in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He sums it up this way. He said, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So there you have his intent. (laughs) I'm going to persecute this thing so violently that it will ultimately be destroyed. Before he met Jesus, that's what Saul was all about. In 1013, we begin, we hear a little bit of Ananias' response to Jesus. And he says, Lord, I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. So it doesn't seem now like Ananias has directly had an encounter with Saul yet at this point. But he's heard the stories. I'm sure he's met with some of those refugees And has been welcoming in those refugees that were scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. He's been probably hearing their stories and and he's probably been listening to to men who have lost their wives or wives who have lost their husbands or, or families who have lost their children to this violent man, Paul. And so stand for a minute in Ananias' sandals when God sends him this call. In verse 11, the first call, God gives Ananias no information about what has happened. He doesn't tell Ananias, I want you to know Saul is a changed man, so you need to go talk to him now. He just says, go. Go to this man who hates you and who wants nothing more than to arrest you, to tie you up and bring you back to Jerusalem and put you on trial. It'd be like you or me getting on a plane If we could do this, getting on a plane and going to Syria to meet with the leaders of ISIS who 
just this month beheaded one of our own Christian and Missionary Alliance Christians in Syria, along with many other Christians, a group bent on destroying followers of Jesus. That's what it's like for Ananias when God says, go go talk to Saul. And not just does he have to go talk to him, but God gives him a message to relay to Saul. That message is in verse 15 and 16. And the the summary of the message is this. I want you to go tell Paul that that God has called you and he's going to send you out. And you're going to go do this heavy, heavy work for God. And you're going to do it in faraway, distant lands. And you will suffer much because of that work. God says, I will show this man, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name. What a prospect, huh? And it's Ananias who needs to take that message and deliver this to the man who seems to be his worst enemy at the time. Would you be afraid? (laughs) Approach someone who's been ravaging the church and has come to your city to arrest and extradite you and your whole Christian community, all those who follow Jesus. And then not just that, but then give him this message (laughs) that he will suffer many things at the name of Christ. I think I'd be afraid. Ananias has a lot to fear, at least the first of which is he just just the fear of approaching this man, Saul. But not just that. He has more to fear than just his own life. I can imagine that Ananias must be thinking, if I obey God in this thing, not only it says this choice doesn't just affect me. It has implications on all those around me. It has implications on the people that I love. This command from God does not just affect Ananias. If he is going to be obedient to God, if he's going to do what God says here, he is exposing himself, yes, to danger. He's exposing his his family. He's exposing his community, other followers of Jesus, to danger. For all he knows, this could be a trap. Even this conversion of Saul could be a trap. Paul could be, or Saul could be play-acting. And, and through this, if, if Ananias is obedient to what God is calling him to do, he's got to be thinking Paul could be getting information here that would lead to, to the arrest of all of the people that I know and love and care about. You see, our obedience to God never affects just us. Despite our American ideal of, of independence, we're in this thing alone Self-reliance. My, the, the fact is that my obedience or my disobedience to God affects not just me, but it affects my family, it affects my friends, it affects my community. When Corey and I made the decision to move from Minnesota to Lincoln a little over 10 years ago, uh, we knew that God was calling us to move down here. But it, it wasn't a decision that affected just our own family my wife's whole family is in Minnesota. We, were, we lived close to her mother. There, her, she, at, that point, at that point, was the only believer in her family. And we were abandoning all of that to follow God. What about them? Who's going who's gonna to share the gospel with them, Yet, let alone just the pain the family members felt as we moved away, the pain that our church community felt, our small group community felt? It never affects just us. When the Youngs and the Petersons stand up here a week ago and share with us how God has been working in their lives to lead them to this point where they are going to move out and be scattered 
from this community to faraway places, that affects each one of us who are sitting here this morning. Saturday night before those guys shared last week, Corey and I sat down and had a conversation with our kids, and it was a tough conversation. They knew part of the story. They had inklings of it. Some knew more than others, but we we shared the entire thing. Um, We shared about the Youngs. We shared about the Petersons leaving. We shared about just the uncertainty of our own future. We don't know what God is going to do here at this church or, or in our lives as part of this church. It's not an easy conversation. Maybe one of the most heartbreaking things as I watched my children struggling with uh, how am I going to, what am I going to do when I lose my friends, these people I spend pretty much every single day with. My youngest, again, Jace, heard that Doug and Lashana were leaving. His first response was, does that mean Doug's not going to tackle me anymore? (laughs) Just breaks your heart. You... Heard that story last week, and maybe you respond with hurt, with tears of loss, maybe even with anger. All of that stuff is welcome. You feel this kind of ripping effect already of change and loss. See, our obedience and our disobedience to God has lasting effects on those around us, both both in positive terms of pushing the kingdom of God forward or in negative terms of of hindering what God wants to do. Ananias knew this and the risk of all of that, all of these people it would affect, I'm sure made him afraid, but he counted obedience to God as way more important than all of these things that aroused fear in him. So my question as I read through this story this week was how? How did this man, Ananias, how was he able to, to obey God in the face of, of that kind of fear? And with that, how can we be obedient to the voice of God in the face of all the fears that come against us? So I want to look a little bit closer at this man, Ananias, how he was able to obey I think there's a lot in this story. I'm just going to mention a few of these things that especially struck me this week. And the first comes with our first introduction to Ananias in verse 10. And the point is this. Obedience in the face of fear starts with following. Where do I get that? Verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And this is pretty much all that we know about this guy. We know that he's a disciple. It's a huge word. It's a word that means he's a follower. By that we know he is labeled as a follower of Jesus. Paul, later in chapter 22 of Acts, when he's recounting this story, gives us a little bit more detail. In, in, in Acts 22:12, he says he was a disciple. He was also a devout man. He was a man who was well spoken of by all of the Jews in, in the town. But that's about all we know about Ananias. He was an ordinary man. He was so so Ananias in this story is you. Ananias in this story is me. He was an ordinary guy, but he was a follower of Jesus. Disciple is a learner or a follower, a person who wants to act like, who wants 
who wants to act like Jesus acts, who wants to do the things that Jesus does, who wants to respond to things the way that Jesus responds to them. He was a disciple. And that's really the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You see, we come to this point in our our exploration of Jesus, whether we've decided to fully embrace and believe in who he is and what he's done for us. We, we come to this point in our walk with Jesus where, where we want to apprentice ourselves to him. We want to become more than just someone who believes in him, but we want to become his follower, his disciple. We want to act like Jesus. We want to do the things that Jesus would do. You see, this, this invitation that Jesus gives us is more than just a contract where I sign on the dotted line, say I accept him and, and get a ticket into heaven. It's about being a disciple, a follower. And disciples follow a Jesus who suffered. So as a follower of Jesus, Ananias, like us had to look to Jesus for the way to respond in the face of fear. And I think that's the first key for how do I obey God in the face of fear. It starts by looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus in places like this. Philippians chapter 2. What would Jesus do if he's facing fear? Well, it tells me, Paul tells me in in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, have this mind, get there, says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's what's available to you in Christ Jesus. This attitude is available to you as a follower of him. What was that attitude? Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held on to, but... He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did Jesus face fear? That fear of the ultimate fear of death and not just death, but a cruel, horrible death on the cross. We see Jesus facing that fear in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 38 and 39. It's the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says to his followers, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Stay here, watch with me. Do you hear any fear in that statement? Sorrow, (laughs) I'm sure accompanied with fear. And then going on a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How did Jesus face fear? He faced it head on. He didn't hide from it. He exposed it to his father. And yet he obeyed. Here's the thing. When you become a Christian, when you became a Christian, it wasn't a call to kind of this smooth path, smooth sailing from here on out. In fact, it's usually the opposite that is true. Jesus himself said, if you're going to follow me, what you have to do is you have to take up your cross daily, every day, take up your cross. You need to deny yourself every day and just follow me. And with that is going to come fear. With that is going to come pain. With that is going to come risk. 
It's not smooth sailing. So when God calls me to step up and to risk something and, and, and the thought of that something makes me kind of just tremble to the bottom of my boots, I have a choice at that point. I can choose to respond in a couple of different ways. I can choose to respond in my own wisdom, my own strength, or maybe just respond out of that fear. And and when I do that, I'm going to, what I do when I respond out of my own wisdom is, is, first thing I do is run away from the things that are making me afraid. Or I, I, I run to some safe place, or I retreat to some safe place inside of me where I can put on a good good appearance on the outside, but really be all messed up on the inside, but just kind of keep it all to myself and hide deep down inside. I can do that or, or I can choose as a follower of Jesus to respond as a disciple, as someone who looks outside of myself, who looks to Jesus for the pattern. Jesus, a leader who faced his fear in, in obedience to the father I can step up and in trust know that the Father is aware of what He's doing and that He's aware of what my story is and that He's holding it all in His hand. And even though everything in front of me with that call to obedience looks very, very frightening, I'm held in His hands. I may not see the big picture, but I can choose to trust anyway and step up in obedience. So Ananias was a follower. He was a disciple. I think that's where it all started. But I think there's another lesson in the text here. Obedience in the face of fear also comes with hearing God's voice. And implied is that in that is as a disciple, I listen. And because I hear God's voice, I can step out in obedience. When God came in verse 10, he said one simple word. He said, Ananias, that was the first call, Ananias, he used his name. Verse 15, it says, the Lord said to him, so that God is speaking to Ananias here, and Ananias is hearing God's voice. Ananias was a disciple who, we don't know a lot about him, but we know that somehow he was in a place where he could recognize God's voice when God spoke. Are you in a place where you are listening? Are you in a place where if God were to speak, you would recognize his voice? When God came in and said, Ananias, he, he wasn't confused. He didn't think it was Mrs. Ananias calling from the kitchen. His, his response was very simple. What, Lord? That's what, it, that's what it means when it says, here I am, Lord. It was just a very simple, what, Lord? I'm listening. In your own life, do you ever sense a leading or, or sense a, a thought that seems to be coming maybe from someplace outside of yourself? Uh, and then you, you maybe pray for guidance about that. You sense that maybe God is beginning to speak to you and you ask him for guidance. And I think the fact is that most of us want to be obedient, but we just want to be sure that we're hearing God's voice. And unfortunately, God never seems to write stuff in the sky <laughs> It's very simple to read. And so we wrestle with this. Is this is this my voice? Is this maybe Satan's voice somehow trying to confuse me or tempt me? And, and in the middle of all that, this fear of getting it wrong keeps me from getting obedience right. 
And it's because I'm not used to, to listening and to hearing God. And so when he speaks, I don't always recognize his voice. But Ananias recognized that God was speaking and he gave him the confidence to obey. How do I know when I'm hearing the voice of God? Tim Keller, I'm kind of paraphrasing this, but he has a great quote. He says, the Bible doesn't tell us how to know God's will necessarily for our lives, but it does tell us the character of a person who is able to discern God's will. And that's what we see in Ananias. He was a disciple. He had followed Jesus. He had learned to listen to God's voice so that when the vision came, I don't know if it was a vision, a dream in the middle of the night or if it was while he was reading the scriptures or while he was praying, but this vision came. And when it came, he didn't have to be confused. He knew that this was God speaking. There's something very fear overcoming when we know that God is really speaking in this thing in my life or this thing in your life. There's something confidence building about that. Shortly after after we were married in 1997, uh, we had a chance to, to pick up everything and move to Brazil for six months, help pastor an English-speaking church there and after we got married, I, when we were married, we had a lot of debt. I had about $30,000 of school debts, of college loans, and some car loans, and all kinds of things like that. I think it would, total we were about $34,000 in debt, and it was just crippling. And we wanted to be in ministry, but we knew that we had to take care of this debt before we could go out and, and serve God in, in our minds. And so we began to pray right when we were married. We began to pray, God... We understand this debt is our responsibility. We're going to work as hard as we can. We were paint, Corey and I were painting houses together as a little small business we did here in Lincoln at that time. And, and, uh, and we just said, God, we're going to work as hard as we can, send every dime off and try to pay off these loans. But our, our, our cry of our heart at that time was God, but we'd love to get a chance to gain some experience in ministry, some, maybe even some kind of cross cultural experience. And so we've been, praying this along the way and we say god if if it's any if there's any way for that to happen will you just make that clear to us and so on one saturday morning as we were laying in bed and the call came from my brother-in-law who's a missionary in brazil and he said there's a church down here who needs help you know would you be willing to come down here for six months and serve as an interim pastor our response to my brother-in-law was well we need to pray about this We'll get back to you. And we hung up the phone and there took about five minutes to look at each other and say, okay, do we need to pray? This kind of sounds like the answer to what we've been praying all along. This seems to be God's voice. And we looked at each other and both said yes. And there was something incredibly freeing as we called back ten minutes later and said, Steve, it's a yes. We'll go. And then within two weeks landed in Brazil for the next what turned into three years. There's something in fear overcoming when you know that God is speaking to you and when you know that God is leading you and you step out in obedience. I could tell you the same story about our move from Minnesota to Lincoln, how God spoke and confirmed his word to us. And we were able to, in the face of a lot of fear and uncertainty, 
move down here on the simple word of God, I have something for you in Lincoln. In both of those moves, we felt empowered, we felt confident, we felt bold in the middle of all of our fears as we moved to obey God. So three quick things, you know, you read that quote, the Bible doesn't tell me how to specifically how to know God's will all the time, but it does tell me the character that I need to have in order to discern his will. So three quick things about the character of a person who learns to recognize God's voice. And none of this is new. (laughs) You've heard this before, but it is essential if you want to be a disciple who can recognize the voice of God. It's not a given that we'll recognize God's voice. We have a similar story in the Old Testament with with, uh, Samuel. Remember when God comes and calls out Samuel's name in the middle of the night? Neither Samuel nor Eli recognize that it's God speaking. And God has to repeat it three times until finally they say, Oh, well, maybe that's God talking. Maybe you ought to answer. (laughs) Not so with Ananias. He was there. He was ready. So what kind of a person is able to hear God's voice? First of all, it's a person who spends time in God's word. God has already revealed. God already speaks to us very clearly in his word. And so if you're not understanding or recognizing God's voice, you need to spend time in the word reading the stories like the story of Ananias and Paul and Peter and and these Old Testament characters. Because when you do that, you're going to get used to hearing the patterns of of God's speech, how he talks. You're going to begin to see how he works. You're going to get to know his character so that when you think you are hearing him, when you think he's speaking to him, you're going to recognize it. It's going to be in character with who he is. It's going to be in character with how he speaks and how he works. So you need to spend time in God's word. Secondly, you need to hang out in God's presence. You need to be with him. You need to be with him in prayer. You need to be with him in worship. You need to create, I love, if if you ever, uh, for those of you who've attended a Men at the Cross or Women at the Cross weekend, they talk about something called sacred space. Do you ever create sacred space in your lives? Space where where you are quiet, maybe where you withdraw from from the, the regular pattern of your life and you allow God to speak to you, whether that's space praying or space just silently listening or space singing and worship to him? Do you create those moments of sacred space where you can learn to sit and listen to God in prayer? Learn to trust him in worship. Times where you can where you can ask the Holy Spirit to be your guide. Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit was given to us in order that we could learn the full story of Jesus, in order that that the Spirit could reveal to us the, the thoughts and the intents of the heart of God. And specifically how he's leading us. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Do you ever stop in your moments of sacred space and just say, Holy Spirit, I can't figure this out on my own. Will you will you guide me? Will you lead me? So you need to hang out in God's presence. And third, you need to be in community. You need to give other people, other believers around you in your community, people that you trust, you need to give them the right to speak into your life. 
When you're wondering what God is saying and how he's leading you, you need to test those thoughts out with others and ask others to pray with you for for confirmation of God's voice. You need to let their spiritual gifts come into play in your life and let the spirit work through the community as well. Spending time in God's word, hanging out in his presence through prayer and worship and being in community with other believers. Did you do you pick up that all three of those things? I don't know if you remember back a week ago as Pastor Mark and Pastor Doug shared their stories and their journey of how God has been leading them to where they are right now. But I heard all three of those things in their stories. They went to God's word and they looked for confirmation there. They spent time in prayer and in worship listening to God. They invited people close to them uh, at the very beginning of this journey to say, I sense maybe God is leading us this way. Will you pray with me? Will you help me discern? Obedience in the face of fear comes when I can listen to and when I can hear and recognize God's voice. Obedience in the face of fear also means honestly exposing those fears to the Father. See, God doesn't call you, doesn't call me to stuff those fears down and to just act like a good Christian, like I'm not afraid of anything, I'm a Christian, I got all the power, I I got this, I can conquer it. That's not what we're called to. I love this, this is great in verse 13 through 15. Ananias lays his heart, his fears out to God, says, Ananias answered, Lord... I mean, you can almost hear the pleading in his voice, in his voice, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. I've heard how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here now here in my own city, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Really, Lord, is this what you're saying? Do you know this man? Listen, people, I want you to hear this. It's okay. It's okay to be afraid. This is not a condemnation. God does not condemn you if you tremble a bit when he asks you to do something. God doesn't require you to to stuff all of that fear down deep and act like like a spiritual mighty mouse. God welcomes your honesty. He welcomes your weakness. He welcomes your desire to run the other way. And he knows that unless you expose that to him, he's not going to be able to to give you the strength to resist all that stuff and follow him in obedience. And that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to submit those fears to him. He wants you to be honest with them like Ananias was here. Pour those things out. Tell him what you're afraid of and then submit all of that stuff to him. Lay them those fears at the, at the foot of the cross. And then, then trust His voice more than you fear that fearful thing. I love the way God responds to Ananias in verse 15. Right after Ananias tells him all these things he's afraid of, the Lord said to him, go. Just in that one word, go. And I dug into that word a little bit this week, kind of the original Greek word behind that. It's a great word. It's it's actually a quite mild word. It's kind of this almost a pat on the back type of word. It, it just means just keep on going. Everything is going to be all right. That's how God responds to Ananias. He doesn't say, Ananias, I can't believe you're afraid of this. I can't believe you're not trusting me. No, he says, Ananias, just go. It's okay. 
I've got this. Then God gives him a little bit more detail. We don't always get this, but he he gives it to Ananias. He he gives him in more detail. He says, go, here's why, because this man Saul is my chosen instrument. Uh, He's praying, not just praying the old... You know, prayers of his old Judaism. This man is truly praying to the risen, resurrected Jesus. He's a, he's a disciple just like you are. You can go, Ananias. In fact, I'm calling him to, to begin a whole new phase in the life of the church. God didn't chastise him for his fears. He just said, Ananias, go. It's okay. Trust my lead here. So again, thinking back to a week ago, two of our pastors shared some really, really big news that affect our whole community. Is there anyone else here this morning that's afraid after hearing that news or might have some fears around that stuff? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm raising my hand. The point is, don't stuff that kind of stuff down. Don't ignore that stuff. Don't ignore the fears. Expose them to God. Submit the fears to him and then trust. Trust anyway. Obedience in the face of fear means exposing those fears to the Father. Finally, obedience in the face of fear also takes courage. It takes a risk. We see that in the story of Ananias, verse 17. After God gives him the second word, it says, So Ananias departed, he entered the house, And he laid hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, I love that word too. Something happened in Ananias' heart so that when he entered that house, he spoke to him as a brother. Can you imagine being in Saul's position, knowing he's hated by all of this community that he has now joined, and probably now for the first time, hears those words of welcome, Brother Saul, welcome into the community of followers of Jesus. But Ananias ultimately had to just do it. He had to, he had to get out of his own house, walk down the street, and enter Saul's house with no promise that this thing was all going to be okay other than God's reassurance. But sometimes you have to just jump in, fear and all, and be obedient. God isn't going to do that hard part for us. He asks us to be the ones to step out, to step into the river, to step out of the boat, whatever it is. He gives us the grace to enable that obedience, but ultimately we're responsible for doing what we're we're told. Can you imagine how Ananias still felt as he walked to that front door and maybe encountered some temple guards who had been traveling with Saul? They don't know the whole story either. They say, you know, why are you here? I'm... Looking for a meeting with Saul. It took courage for him to step out and actually do what God was calling. And when we're faced with difficult choices, the, the goal is not freedom from fear. The goal is not to just that, that, that all those fears will disappear. The goal is to find the courage that God gives us to do what he actually wants us to do in the middle of or in the face of all of those fears. Sometimes that's going to be in a big, crazy, risky move like we heard about last week. 
Sometimes maybe it's just a risk to take the next step in whatever God's doing in your life or in your heart. Maybe he's been prompting you to, to, to just take the next step. Sometimes it takes courage to take that next step. So the cool thing about the Bible is that we, we get to see the end of the story most of the time. When guys like Ananias respond obediently to God's call. See, we, we never hear from Ananias again in the New Testament. He just kind of fades away, but we do get to see the end of this chapter of his life, this story. So again, we see that Ananias, verse 17, departs. He enters the house. He lays his hands on Saul, says, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Learn elsewhere that he had been fasting for three days. You see, if there wasn't an Ananias, we wouldn't have the story of Paul. Ananias had a huge role. God had a huge job for him in the life of Saul. He needed Saul to be welcomed into the church before he became the great apostle Paul. He needed... He needed Saul's eyes open. I think that's more than just his physical eyes. I think there was something in there maybe that opened the eyes of his heart, his spiritual eyes, to be able to, as Paul gives testimony to later in other books, he says, I then began, I, I heard God speaking to me as he revealed the gospel to him. If we didn't, if there wasn't Ananias, we wouldn't have Paul. A side note there is a question that I had this week, too, is who is your Saul? Is, it, is there a chance that God is calling you to someone like a Saul, someone who, who seems so completely unreachable to you, who seems like the furthest person from Jesus? Maybe God is prompting you to, to be the one who is there to, to give them a word, to welcome them in, to work out God's story in their life. Just a bonus question there you can ask through this story. Who is your Saul? The rest of Acts is basically Paul's story, and if Ananias hadn't been part of it, we wouldn't know this. Paul went on to become one of the most impactful leaders in Christian history. Through Paul, God explodes his gospel and explodes his kingdom into the entire Gentile world. It becomes not just, not just this, this Jewish offshoot of a Jewish religion. It becomes... The gospel going to all nations, tribes, and tongues. This is the beginning. In chapter 9, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. The gospel going out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Through Paul, we have most of the the New Testament written down for us. Thirteen of the 27 books in the New Testament are credited to Paul. Through Paul, countless churches are planted and, and, and churches and Christians are encouraged and strengthened on their journey. All of this because Ananias was obedient in the face of fear. So two questions to bring this home for us this morning. 
And I want you to actually think about these questions and answer these questions in your head, even right now, if, if you have an answer. First question is simply, where is God calling you to step up or to step out? What is God saying to you, in other words? Are you listening to him? Is he speaking? Do you sense that maybe he's leading you into some decision or, or some move or some action? Maybe there is a Saul in your life. Who is that? Maybe it's a God leading you to a change in direction in your own life or career or relationships. Maybe it's just a, a next step in a journey that you've already begun. But what, where is God calling you to step up or step out? And second question, as you think about question one, what fear does, does that bring up in you when you think about what God's calling you to do? What are the fears that, that that arouses in your spirit? Maybe it, maybe they're very, very real fears. Maybe if you say yes to that thing that God is asking you to do right now, there are some very real dangers to you or to your family. Maybe there's some real loss, some real heartache and pain that would, would come if you truly say yes to God in this. So maybe it's a fear of some very real danger that could happen. Maybe it's a, a fear of just failure. Yeah, I've tried to obey and step out and follow God's lead before, and I've messed it up before, and I, it's just going to happen again. Maybe it's a fear of ridicule. If I do that, I'm going to look like an idiot. What fear or fears does that bring up in you? And maybe you don't even have a specific answer to the first question up there. Maybe there's no specific leading or something specific God is calling you to right now. But maybe it's just that in your life right now, you're kind of you're surrounded or confronted with a bunch of fears about what God is doing in you right now. And, and so just the simple act of obedience in following Jesus as a disciple is the fearful thing for you. I want you to get those things in your mind. And the way I want to end this morning is, you know, I mentioned to you one of the ways, the third way that I mentioned to you about how, how we become a person with the character of someone who is a follower and a listener and can hear and recognize God's voice is to be in community, to, to expose some of your fears and, and maybe what you're sensing from God, expose that to others in your community. And so what I want to do as we close here is, is create just maybe five minutes of some sacred space right here this morning. And so I'm going to ask you again to step out and risk something a little bit as we close. I want you to, when I say so, just find one other person or maybe two other people, not many more than that, just one or other one one or two people close to you this morning and here's what i want you to do i'm going to kind of lead you through this i want you to share kind of your answers to those two questions where is god calling you to step up or step out and in regards to that where are your fears what are you afraid of 
I'm going to give you about two minutes to, to share that with each other. So each person take about a minute, and I'll guide, that, guide you through that. And then I'm going to ask you to, to just spend a couple minutes praying for each other. About three minutes to do that, a minute and a half to pray for each other. I want to guide, I'm just going to keep time for you, so make this painless. But I want you to take a risk this morning to be honest about something that might be heavy on your heart. And to take a risk to trust that maybe you're surrounded this morning with a safe community. People are not going to judge you for what you're afraid of. They're not going to condemn you, but they're going to come alongside you and they're going to actually spend a minute praying for you this morning. And then when we're done, I'm going to close us all in prayer. And as we're going through this or as we come to the end of this, uh, worship guys, you can come up as well. So right now, take... Two minutes, turn to someone and share your answers to those two questions. Okay, now if you'll take, first person take about a minute and a half to pray over the person who was just sharing with you. Okay, switch. I invite you if you want to continue praying even as we worship, uh, close in worship. Uh, that you continue to do so and even continue to pray for each other afterwards if the Spirit leads you. But now, Holy Spirit, I just pray that we've taken just these brief moments, and it's it's so hard to to share in just two minutes uh, things that are real, but uh, just pray that it will give us just a little taste of what it's like to be honest with you and with each other about the things that make us afraid and and, uh, even share some things that we may sense you're, you're speaking. Um, just pray that you'll continue to uh, to give us the character to to hear your voice and recognize it. Pray that you'll continue to give us the courage to step out and risk when you call us. And uh, pray that you'll continue to give us the courage to reach out to one another in community. We pray in the name of Jesus.